Well, good morning, everyone. I just want to take a minute and make uh, another announcement that you'll see in your bullets, and then we're going to watch a fun video. Um, as far as, uh, it's in your bulletin, but as, as far as just being uh, a people who are grateful for those who serve us, I want to give a shout out to our deacons, because they are people, uh, Mark and Mary Lou and, J- excuse me, Jenny, who uh, are constantly uh, working and serving people, and deacons do that behind the scenes. They, they don't ask for a lot of attention, and they're not often given gratitude for that. So I want to give them a round of applause if we can, because they're amazing people. And over the last couple of months, uh, we've been having conversations with someone about potentially coming on and joining the elder board, as a, or excuse me, the deacon team as a servant there. And so as uh, unanimously from the deacons and from the elders, we're putting Steve Markell forward to you as a church body uh, to consider for the office of deacon. So Steve, would you stand so everybody can kind of see who you are? And Steve, as a true deacon, you can sit down now. I know you love, you love attention. Um, as a true deacon, Steve is a guy who serves constantly and doesn't ask for any applause, doesn't ask for an office, didn't come begging to become a deacon. In fact, I think his arm was more twisted uh, to, to even step into consideration. And, and he serves faithfully the last number of years on the finance team as well as on the budget team. He prays um, constantly, I think. And Steve, hopefully, if, 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 we put, uh, if we as a covenant membership would affirm him as a, as a deacon, he'll be stepping in and taking some of the benevolence uh, oversight in our, in our congregation. So uh, over the next couple of weeks, if you don't know Steve, I'd encourage you to get to know him, have a cup of coffee with him, have dinner, invite him over for dinner or something, get to know him. Um, if you do know Steve, um, in two weeks we're going to be affirming, as a covenant membership, affirming that, doing another vote of affirmation. So, And I hope that will be the last ballot of the year that we'll have to pass around and cover. So anyway, if you have any questions about him or uh, what we're doing there, please come to one of the elders or the deacons and ask us about it. Okay, so I want to show you this video, and it looks like it's working. And I think you'll be able to see it from where you're sitting. And... Um, and then I'm, we're just going to move on, and I'll talk about it later. So get, it, get, get this image in your mind, okay? Oh, hello. Sneaky. Oh, what? <laughs> Oh, that's like cannibalism. I won't make you watch the whole thing. It's probably cruelty to animals or something like that. Okay, like I said, I'm not going to say much more about it. That was awesome. Thanks, Calvin. Okay, I'm going to come back to that, though. So have that picture in your mind. Here's an alligator coming to get its prey, this bird that's just kind of has no clue what's going on. And then something much bigger comes out of the bushes and takes it, takes it down, takes it out. And today we have this picture of another healing, another demon-possessed man, blind and mute, being brought to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. And if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there and follow along with me. A demon-possessed man, it's Calvin Redis, who's blind and mute, was brought to him and he healed him. 
so that the mute man both spoke and saw. Now, in this story, we aren't given much detail about this man. We aren't, uh, you know, we aren't told his name or where he comes from or who brings him or anything. We just know these three things about him. And the fact is that this is about the most difficult case you can get. A man who's, who's blind, can't see. He's also deaf, probably deaf and mute. And so his world is really enclosed. I think of, when I think of this person, I think of Helen Keller. You know the story of, of Helen Keller, someone who uh, she could speak, but she was deaf and blind and, and from a very young age. And you can imagine living that kind of life, just darkness in, in so many ways. You could get around by feeling, but that was it. And so there was an isolation and really a total, uh, total darkness for this man. The picture is, is a threefold enslavement, right? Blindness, deafness, and muteness. But on top of that, demon possession, complete and total bondage. And, and you can picture someone who's, who's almost dehumanized because, because of what is happening to them. Someone who's oppressed and isolated, who's been cut off from relationships by virtue of his inability just to communicate. Could you imagine not being able to communicate with people or be able to know what's going on for the most part in the world around you? And then on top of that, having this demonic oppression and the work of Satan in this man is to bring him really to complete isolation. It's a a picture of darkness and bondage. And in one moment... King Jesus comes to this man and gives him complete freedom. So he heals every area of his life. Physically, he heals him. He gives him his sight back. He gives him his speech back. He he makes him able to heal. He brings mental, emotional, spiritual, and relational freedom to this man. Healing every area of his life with his power and authority that is all-encompassing. So so Jesus' authority isn't just healing. And it's not just authority in the spiritual realm. It's full and complete physical, mental, emotional, spiritual in every area of creation. And because of that, in every area of our lives. The Dutch theologian and politician Abraham Kuyper famously said this. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There's not an inch of your life, there's not an inch of this world that Jesus doesn't declare His sovereignty over, His ownership over every single part of who we are. Jesus can heal it. And bring wholeness. And that's the sermon. Amen. Let's go home. (laughs) But we have something else going on here, right? We have opponents. We have people speaking against Jesus in the midst of this beautiful picture of freedom. And really, when we come to Jesus, there's when we when we are confronted with Jesus, there's two possible options, right? We can we can recognize him like the crowds did. And we see them do this in verse 23. It says, The whole crowd was astonished. And was saying, is it possible? Could this be the son of David? Could it be him? Is it possible? So you can either be astonished and recognize Jesus or oppose Jesus. And that's 
exactly what the Pharisees do in the very next verse, verse 24. When the Pharisees heard about it, they said, this imposter, this, this one, he's an imposter. He's only casting out demons by Beelzebul, by the, by the prince of demons. That's the power that he has. It's a demonic power. Well, first of all, let's, let's deal with what the crowd says. The crowd asks the question, could this be the son of David? Now, you may recall that when we studied Matthew chapter 9, specifically verses 27 to 34, we have two blind men there, and they come to Jesus, and they're crying out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And we, we explored what that meant. What, is it, what did that title, Son of David, mean? And these men were using this kind of messianic title that there would would come one who would be a descendant of David, who would be a warrior king on the one hand, who who would come and in strength and power establish his kingdom, who would oppose his enemies and establish a throne. But this the son of David would not just be a warrior king, he would also be a shepherd king. So he would he would come in compassion and care. For his people, gathering his his scattered and beleaguered sheep and and healing them and bringing wholeness to them. And we see Jesus doing that throughout the book of Matthew, being this warrior, shepherd, king, the son of David. But in that, we also observe that the son of David would be a a divisive figure. One whom you you weren't just going to be neutral about. You would either recognize him or you would oppose him. And the crowds are recognizing, they're at least beginning to recognize who Jesus is. But in stark contrast to them, we saw in verse 14 that the, that the Pharisees are currently plotting to destroy Jesus. They want him dead because he's coming and he's undercutting their authority and their, their power. They've already made up their minds about Jesus. Now, unfortunately for them, they've made up their minds about Jesus, but he keeps doing stuff. He keeps showing his power. He keeps doing stuff like this, like healing people who are blind, raising up dead people. You know, so they can't just go like, oh, no, no, he's not really doing miracles. <laughs> they, they can't deny his power. I'm sure it's obnoxious to them. Healing deaf people, giving blind people their sight, casting out demons with a simple word. So if they can't deny his power, then they've got to be able to explain it in some way. Now, how many? I know most of you are experts in the courtroom because you've watched courtroom dramas on TV or Judge Judy or something like that. So you know, as do I, exactly how courtrooms run. But one thing that we, we can kind of have get our minds around is that if you're a defense attorney in a courtroom, your job is basically, if you're defending a party, your job is to create reasonable doubt. In the mind of a jury. And if you can create reasonable doubt, then they shouldn't be able to uh, render a guilty verdict. And so I think what the Pharisees are trying to do here is, in some sense, render reasonable doubt among the people about who Jesus is. So they take this angle of slandering him. Uh, they, they actually attack his character here and begin to accuse him of being in league with evil spiritual forces. He's casting out demons by Beelzebul or in the name or by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And in short, you know, we can ask who's Beelzebul. And that's basically a name taken from, from some Canaanite deity that really refers to Satan. 
They were accusing Jesus of working with Satan, powerful, evil enemy of God. And if you think about it, in the Jewish law, witchcraft, sorcery, being in league with the devil, was a crime punishable by death. So think about it for a minute. What better way for the Pharisees to destroy Jesus than to slander his reputation and accuse him of a capital crime? That's what the Pharisees are doing here in their opposition with Jesus. But Jesus, as always, comes back at them with kind of this kingdom logic. He says in verse 25, But knowing their inmost thoughts, I love that. He knows exactly what they're thinking. Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And no, Abraham Lincoln did not come up with that quote. That was straight from Jesus. A house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. So how will his kingdom stand? You might remember last week I pointed out the fact that I think Jesus didn't come mainly to pick a fight with the Pharisees. And even here, he's not the one picking the fight. They are the ones that pick the fight with him. Jesus' fight is with a greater power, a greater invisible power, namely Satan, a greater foe who is, if you think about what's happening here, Satan is actually using these Pharisees as a pawn to destroy Jesus and to distract him and distract people from from his mission, from, from who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. So pay attention to what's going on here carefully because we do this all the time. Satan is using people to distract from a spiritual battle. He is using flesh and blood to get our eyes off what's really going on. This is the same kind of thing that happens when we see people as our primary enemies, somebody makes me angry, they're my enemy. Somebody annoys me, they're my enemy. Somebody cheers for the Houston Astros, I mean, for a different team than you cheer for, they're your enemy. Somebody goes to a different church or votes for a different candidate or has a different set of beliefs, different than I do, then they're my enemy. But Scripture is very clear that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6.12. Paul tries to get our eyes like, take your eyes off the person in front of you. They're not your enemy. They're not the one you're fighting against. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, so Jesus isn't primarily combating the Pharisees here. His, his real battle is with the one who is behind them. And the irony of this whole story is that the very one, that's the very one they are accusing Jesus of being in league with. He's actually surreptitiously using them to attack Jesus. Jesus' main point here is that what is happening in his ministry, in his ministry of healing and deliverance, is not just a parlor trick. It's not just some random clinic, but it's a heated battle in a bigger war. And no one can win a war by sabotaging their own side. A kingdom or a city or a house, as Jesus says, that turns on itself when it's in the midst of a battle 
will not last long. And be sure of this, that Jesus has come to wage war with the kingdom of darkness. And because Satan is a thief and a murderer, he's out to steal and kill and destroy. His kingdom is a kingdom of oppression and isolation, wanting to get us apart from each other. And his kingdom, the works of his kingdom are marked by bondage and sickness and blindness and deafness and muteness and, and death and hatred. But as the Son of God comes, the fruit of His kingdom is freedom. So so Satan wants to blind people. Jesus comes and gives them sight. Satan wants to hold people in bondage. Jesus comes to free them. Satan wants to separate people. Jesus comes to heal relationships. Satan breaks things. Jesus comes and makes broken things whole and beautiful. Satan wants to kill. And Jesus comes and gives life in dead places. And he authoritatively and powerfully undoes the very works of Satan's kingdom and pulls out the foundations from the enemy's house. That's what's going on. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. What's going on here is I'm completely ransacking the enemy. And you think I'm working for them? You think by pulling the carpet out from under them that shows that I'm an agent of their kingdom? This is a war, Jesus says, and wars aren't by dismantling your own forces. Jesus goes on. He says, not only can a divided kingdom not stand, but then he points back to the Pharisees and says, what about your sons in verse 27? He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul or by the power of evil, by whom do your sons cast them out? On account of this, they will be your judges. So Jesus points back to the Pharisees we're applying this faulty logic of a double standard. Of course, you know, Jesus isn't speaking here of their, like you Pharisees and your biological sons. He's speaking about their disciples. There, are, there were Pharisaical disciples or, or, or members of the, of the sect of the Pharisees who were exorcists. We actually meet some of them, some Jewish exorcists in Acts chapter 19, who are going around and, and doing these exorcisms, and then they take Jesus' name. You remember this? They said, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I tell you to get cast out, and these, uh, these seven sons of a Jewish high priest get beat up by the demon-possessed guy. You remember that story in Acts chapter 19? So there were obviously Jews who were able to cast out demons. And it stands to reason that if Jesus is in league with Satan, then their exorcist must be tapping into the same power. So the Pharisees' slanderous accusation against Jesus actually comes back on their own head as a judgment. They will stand up and judge you, he says, as a judgment upon them. So if you're accusing me, you're actually accusing yourself. They stand condemned even as they stand in condemnation. The same measure that they use to judge Jesus has become a measurement against them. Like Jesus himself said, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I'm going to step back for a moment because this is one of those stories, you get to this point, and it gets a little bit confusing. The implications of what Jesus says here kind of throw us for a loop because we know from 2 Corinthians, from the word of Paul, that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. So seemingly Satan can look good, make himself look like he's, Uh, on the side of good. So it's no surprise 
Paul goes on to say, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So it, it seems like what the Pharisees are bringing against Jesus here has some bite to it. And it's certainly possible that someone could exercise authority in the spiritual realm and appear spiritually powerful and yet not know Jesus. I mean, Jesus is saying, people can cast out demons and yet not know God. Seems a little weird to us. Jesus has already, though, warned his disciples in in chapter 7. He said, false prophets are going to come. They're going to put on sheep's clothing. And eventually they're going to say to me, hold on, Jesus, didn't we cast out demons in your name? And Jesus is going to turn around to them and say, you may have done that, but you never knew me. This is, I think, crucial for us to understand because the idea is that spiritual authority does not equal authenticity. I was listening to a, an old recording of a, of a sermon from a pastor, a well-known pastor, who was basically publicly claiming that God gave him visions of certain things that were in the future, that God gave him these visions and he was able to discern spiritual bondage in people's lives. And these visions, these things would come true and he would be able to point to them as, as a marker of his spiritual authority and what he could do for people. And, and when people make claims like this, even and especially are able to prove that their claims are true, we actually need to be careful because it's easy for us to make the logical jump from, wow, this person seems to have some spiritual authority, have some authority in the spiritual realm. Therefore, I should listen to them. Therefore, I should follow them. Therefore, everything they say should be true. Hold on. This just said something that doesn't seem to align with Scripture. But hold on. They did this over here. So they must know what they're talking about. You see how we make that jump? That connection in our mind? But Jesus never says that spiritual authority equals authenticity. How does he tell us we are to discern authenticity? Chapter 7, verse 16, you will know them, you will recognize them by their, what? Their fruits. And in verse 33 of this chapter, chapter 12, he says, for the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus doesn't tell us to discern how much power and authority he, 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 they have. He tells us to discern what kind of fruit they have. I had lunch with a, with a gentleman who was part of this church a number of years ago, and I had some concerns about him at the time. We sat down, and it was one of those conversations where uh, my, my spirit was in turmoil the whole time. Because we're talking about the Bible, quoting, and I'm hearing Scripture quoted and misquoted, and, and some things seemed on and some, thing, seem, some things seemed off. But the, at the end of the day, what I had to say to him is, whatever you have going on here, I'm not sure about. But what I see in your life is divisiveness and isolation and sin. It's really hard to say to somebody, by the way. But this idea that 
I mean, I hope you get the illustration, the idea that spiritual authority does not always equal authenticity. What we're looking for is fruit. And the fruit that Jesus was bringing as he brought his kingdom was the fruit of life and freedom and relationship and joy. You can throw the fruits of the Spirit on there. Does this person produce love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Are those things on display? And if they're not, even if there's power that you can discern, be wary. Jesus produced good fruit, and yet his enemies accused him of being from the devil. And he continues to go on here and saying that the kingdom of God has come. Now, we weren't there to be able to watch one of Jesus' exorcisms, which would have been probably crazy to watch. But something was different about the way that Jesus did it, because he goes on to say this in verse 28. This is challenging, provocative statement. He says in verse 28, But if I cast out demons by God's Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how is someone able to enter into a strong man's house and carry off its things unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he will plunder his house. Of course, the casting out of demons, we know, because Jews were doing it, wasn't necessarily accomplished by God's Spirit. The sons of the Pharisees could somehow accomplish it, whatever they did to do it. But it was clear that when Jesus did it, something qualitatively different was going on because he was anointed by God's Spirit, which Matthew just told us up in verses 18 through 21. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. The spirit of God was upon Jesus, and that very spirit was powerfully with authority through Jesus casting out these demons. And his authority in the spiritual realm is infinitely higher and unlike any other. And what Jesus was doing in these moments was a full frontal assault on the kingdom of Satan, a plundering, if you will, a plundering of his kingdom through the Spirit of God. Jesus' ministry wasn't simply about being a nice guy, healing people and being sweet to them. It was about freeing people from the dungeons of the evil one. And the only way he could do this was by overpowering the strong man, overpowering Satan, tying him up, and ordering, calling for a jailbreak. This is the point of his ministry. All this healing, all this giving sight to the blind, all this giving words to the mute, freedom to the demon-possessed, all of this is a plundering of the dungeons of the enemy. Jesus reclaiming what was rightfully his and what had been stolen from him. And when Jesus comes, the kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, the Spirit is at work. You know the kingdom of God is upon you, he says. And where the Spirit is at work, there is freedom from the dominion of God's enemy, Satan. Satan is the strong man. Jesus even says that. He, Jesus calls him the strong man. He recognizes his power, but he recognizes 
that Satan exerts power and influence in a kingdom that has been placed under his control temporarily. But Jesus is also clear that he and Satan are not on the same spiritual footing. It's not like we have these equal forces of good and evil, of darkness and light, and they're battling in this eternal cosmic battle. Not at all. Jesus' authority and power is comprehensive and overwhelming compared to that of Satan. We can have all sorts of conversations, theological, eschatological, political, I'm sure, as to the nature of, of the binding of the strong man we see here in these verses. But needless to say that Satan's power in the world, as real as it is, has been qualitatively limited since Jesus' coming. And yes, we are still in a war. But Jesus has effectively neutralized the power of Satan by the measure of faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Wherever faith in Christ is present, Satan's power is still real but minimal and ineffective. Wherever there is a lack of faith, then Jesus, excuse me, then Satan has found true subjects and still holds sway. And we know from scripture that Satan's greatest ploy is fear, especially the fear of death. Hebrews 2 tells us that Satan is the one who holds the power of death and through who the fear of death has subjected everyone to lifelong slavery. And when Jesus comes and overcomes death, guess what? Satan's power is rendered ineffective and harmless. He has no power over you if your faith is in Jesus Christ. He doesn't have the power of death over you anymore. He doesn't have the power of fear over you anymore. He cannot hold your sin over your head because your sin has been covered. It has been forgiven by the blood of Christ. And he has no power over that. Yeah, there were still demon-possessed people in Jesus' time. And after. Even today. And Satan can certainly, and he does effectively, continue to oppress and steal and kill and destroy. But his power has been minimized because Jesus, the Son of David, the Messiah, the King, has brought a pivotal change through the Spirit, binding the devil, and he has sounded the warning that Satan's days are numbered. Satan's kingdom is being scuttled and it's going down. And the coming of Jesus was just the beginning. The continuing work of the kingdom in the world, even today, through the church, is a continued assault on the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Do you ever look at the world and feel like God is losing? It's how it feels sometimes. But be assured, Jesus is saying here, my kingdom will not fail I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. We have a strong enemy, but a stronger victor. Our enemy has been bound by Jesus in the power of the Spirit. Yes, we must be aware of his tricks, his temptations, but we need not fear him. For he can have no eternal power or lasting control wherever faith is. In Jesus and wherever the Spirit of God is present. So think about that video I showed you for a minute. 
Who are we in that video? We're the bird that doesn't have any idea what's going on. (laughs) But it's, in some sense, fearless. And here's this little alligator coming to sneak up and destroy and kill and devour and eat and wants us to be the, the victim who gets devoured. But a bigger one comes out of the bushes, right? Takes them out. And that's what Jesus does for us. The greater, the infinite, the eternal power comes and devours the one who wants to devour us. We just get to stand there and and watch in some way. I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus through faith, I want to invite you this morning to come to the table. This is the place we celebrate communion most every week, and we recognize here the decisive work of Jesus, the son of David, this work of the kingdom of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus broke the power of sin and death, where Jesus came and in that moment unshackled prisoners and proclaimed a spiritual and physical and emotional and mental and relational freedom to all of us who would believe. In Jesus' work on the cross, we can, through the eyes of faith, see, see not just a suffering servant on the cross, but a conquering king. Because he was resurrected on the third day, we can look to Jesus. I'm going to call you this morning to come and look to Jesus. In the midst of the battle that seems like a losing battle, look to Jesus. In the midst of fear and anxiety, look to Jesus this morning. In the midst of condemnation or shame, look to Jesus this morning. In the midst of struggling and wrestling with your own faith, look to Jesus this morning. In the midst of perceived defeat, look to Jesus. And all this, know that you can look to Jesus because King Jesus is looking to you. He's calling you. He's beckoning you to come and come to the table in faith. Receive once again a reminder of both his infinite love, but also his eternal power. Both of these offered through his life given for you. So will you come? Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful that you are the conquering king, the victor who's tied up the strong man for us. And on, on our behalf, you've defeated death. You've defeated sin. You've defeated the devil. And, and we have no need to fear any but you. You come to us, you look, you look at us, and you beckon us to come and to be united with you, to be one with you, to be... Um, loved by you, to be encouraged by your grace even this morning. So God, where we are downcast, where we're discouraged, where we're fearful, where we're anxious, Lord, where we feel shame or guilt or despair, would you come and would you release the shackles? Would you bring freedom? Would you bring wholeness? We declare today in faith that there is not one inch of all of this creation, including every part of our lives, over which you do not proclaim mine. So this morning, God, would you give us the strength to give every square inch back to you. In your name that we pray. For your glory and in your power. Amen.